moving from one great debate to another great debate, we started some fiery controversy through the Biota Conversations mailing list last episode about spiders. And I'm not sure if you, I think you were on, I think you heard the call live, Dick, but certainly I wanted to talk to Jeffrey initially because we were hoping to have him on to talk about his own ideas in spider simulation. So as you didn't have the benefit of hearing the last episode, Gerald, would you like to summarize it for Jeffrey? Um, let me see. Well, my, my point of view was that, uh, you know, the somehow, uh, however, it's, it's something we have to discover, but how, however, a spider with its tiny little brain is able to build a web. Uh, and, and uh, you know, there are a number of examples of animals that uh, extend their uh, sort of existence into the environment around them. And somehow, without uh, you know spiders going to spider university, they uh, they have this uh, innate ability to build a fairly complicated uh, structure to support their uh, their lifestyles. And uh, it's fascinating to think about what uh, how how it would be possible that the genetics would more or less uh, you know directly build the, the the neurons that that do the job because there's probably not much learning involved. Well, well, look. Can I can I interject to something? Uh, when I was a uh, a cruel teenager, I did a little experiment with an ant. And what I did is I, I placed a ring of kerosene around the ant. And so the ant was perfectly safe in the middle of this ring, except maybe for the fumes. And the ant kept testing. The would walk up to the ring because it was inside the ring and it would back off. And it tried this in every which direction it could. And then all of a sudden, the thing walks through the ring of kerosene. Wow. Okay? I was startled. (laughs) You know, know, I mean, you know, we can uh, anthropose on it and say it came to the conclusion it was trapped, and it had to take the risk of going through the hell of walking through this this obviously noxious liquid, not knowing whether what was on the other side or whether it would get out. <laughs> okay. And it did so. Uh, so it's, it solved the problem that I had confronted it with, and I doubt it's a problem that any other ant has ever seen. It's also, it's also sort of just uh, you know, reacting to stimuli. Hey, we were going to hear about from Jeffrey on this. So Jeffrey, let us hear it. Well, um, I, I agree uh, that the, that we were anthrop- that maybe it's easy to anthropomorphize the ant if that's the right word. Yeah. But uh, it's probably just it's probably just going through a very simple algorithm uh, where it's it's desire to 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 get away from whatever it's in uh, got high enough that it decided to plunge through the flames. Um, I would assume it I would assume it's a simple algorithm and it wasn't going through a lot of logical decisions. And it, but as far as the uh, ant, uh, the spider web, I think uh, I can't remember. I can't remember where I read this, but um, if you think about the spider's web as similar to the design on a seashell or the design on a on a on an animal's uh, fur or something like that, it's a, it's a design, it's a pattern that occurs in nature. Um, and the spider happens to build it rather than it, it emerging or emerging. Uh, as a as a as a pattern, so it's just it's just another pattern among other patterns that nature creates. Uh, maybe if you think of it that way, it might uh, it might help you. It, it's a different way of thinking about it. I think. 
So what happens when you give the spider caffeine or LSD? Well, I've never done that experiment myself, but I've seen some pictures, and they're pretty interesting uh, designs. Yeah, yeah I, I sent a list of papers uh, that on disrupting spiders, uh, you know, dr- drugging them in various ways. And most, most of the time you don't want to waste it on the spiders. <laughs> so following, last, following the last podcast, uh, and I don't think anyone's represented my views currently, but I won't necessarily save, uh, say them again, but following the last podcast we received a lot of correspondence because my view initially, and somewhat naively, was that spiders didn't have the uh, necessary brain chemistry, in inverted commas, to do the um, kind of high-level handling of the kind of chemistry that was described. Uh, I've since been correct in that regard, but certainly my own feeling with regards to spiders, and I've delved back into my times in Australia and talked to other Australian folk with regards to their experience of spiders, particularly with regards to playing with prey, indicates that spiders are... Um, somewhat devalued by this uh, deterministic approach uh, associated with how they construct their webs. And they may actually have, um, and this here is also supporting what Gerald is saying. I don't necessarily think intelligence is a bad thing in these circumstances, particularly with regards to dealing with abstract concepts and uh, potentially uh, a teenage Dick Gordon with some kerosene. Um, But I think there is a, a component to this which we um, trivialize with regards to just thinking that the spider has uh, neurons which have been worn over generations through an extended phenotype. I think this is a a view of the natural world which would ultimately lead you to be bitten a number of times by Australian spiders. And given (laughs) a diversity of spiders, this kind of luxury would erode very quickly. Um, Gerald, have you thought any more with regards to this problem? I am. I just have very little experience with the uh, large-scale, the big hairy spiders in Australia. So the only ones I know are, you know, little little tiny spiders. So I, I really can't imagine. I, I I can picture, of course, that that a, a large spider might might be a little more, you know, clever. Are, are, how clever are they, Tom? Did you play with them as a teenager? Did you put them? I, mean, I, I had the, the funny thing is I I um, I know a fellow who lived in Australia for his formative teenage years, and he has far stronger insect phobias than I do. Growing up around these kind of critters, for want of a better term, you just get used to them. My wife, for example, who's a a native Southern Californian, cannot deal with any kind of insect life in her environment, bar very, as you say, very small, tame ones. Having camped in Australia and had these large spiders crawl across your face and also watch these large spiders kind of reel up and, and... you know, go for lunging movements and attack various forms of prey. I mean, to see one of these spiders versus a, a large Australian praying mantis, you do get the impression that the, uh, you know, whatever they call it now, world wrestling entertainment has nothing on nature. And I think the over the oversimplification of thinking about the world in this kind of beautiful determinism, which ultimately I, I do get the sense that Dawkins seems to filter through both. Terminus. It's not determinism in the philosophical sense at all. Well, what you find is my use of the term determinism does map back onto the philosophical term determinism, but it's not immediate. What I'm saying is that you are describing a 
a level of um, automation in you know, some extreme sense, which I wouldn't want to prescribe even well, yeah. to bacteria. Isn't it, isn't it like nature and nurture? Uh, in a sense, you know, we're just saying, uh, what, what could the spider learn in its lifetime? Perhaps uh, you know, they, they don't really learn at all. It's, it's inherited. I'm wondering about these spiders of yours in, in some of them are like as big as your hand, aren't they, in Australia? Certainly, or larger. I mean, I, I think I circulated the photo of the spider eating the small bird, or at least yeah, wrapping those, it up. Do those spiders build webs the size of trees or what? Well, yeah. many of them don't even buy, build, they build very well-optimized webs for catching things or at least getting them entrapped, and then they come around and cocoon the prey. So they're not, in fact, buy, building huge webs, they're just building very sensitive webs. Particularly still, if you think they, about windy still, environments. They still do build webs, though, even the larger ones. Well, you then have the funnel webs, which don't... I mean, again, my my knowledge isn't as uh, in the forefront as when I lived in Australia. But there are a wide variety of spiders that build a wide variety of webs. And what you see with a kind of cliched spoke web is certainly not the case with all the spiders in Australia. There are spiders that build funnel webs uh, and, you know, lure the prey into the webs. There are spiders... Um, particularly ant-eating spiders that don't even use webs fundamentally. They go and, and, you know, catch ants by looking like ants and then, you know, wrap and devour. I mean, I think the diversity of spiders probably gives, um, you know, maybe a greater sense of respect with regards to the possibility that they, uh, you know, they're... the. I think the, the point, and this comes back to the discussion that we have with the Cambrian explosion of Roy Plotnick, is that intelligence is actually a survival mechanism. And I think my concern with regards to the extended phenotype is that it doesn't have a means of, well, perhaps because our knowledge of intelligence as a kind of abstract form isn't as uh, necessarily as great as our, um, you know, the description of the extended phenotype. But I think that intelligence is a, a critical part and certainly developing artificial life applications. And this is why I wanted to talk to Jeffrey in particular with regards to his spider simulation you know, intelligence makes things just a little bit more interesting and perhaps a little bit more realistic in some regard. Tom, can I turn the question around? Could you act as, could you take your own human intelligence and act as intelligently as a spider in its situation? Mm-hmm. Well, this is a very powerful question, and my, my immediate response would be probably no. Why not? Because I don't have, I mean, I think of this with regards to small animals. We have cats. And the way that cats approach things due to their size and due to the things that they have, like whiskers and probably better vision in certain circumstances, changes the way their intelligence operates. And I think being particularly um, for folks who listen to the podcast and don't have a sense of me, I'm six foot four and a rather large lumbering ape-like creature. Um, (laughs) My own motion and the way, I mean, this is ultimately the phenomenology idea of intelligence that is as part of your embodied phenomenology, you have, um, you know, a different kind of intelligence than something that has eight legs and moves in particular directions. I wouldn't even know, you know, what extracting web silk would be like in that kind of environment. So I, I don't think I could. And what's interesting to me is there are algorithms that could move what I know in a broad kind of algorithmic sense to something that resembled spider intelligence a lot better. But it moves from this idea of extended phenotype as being purely with regards to genetics connecting neurons to an idea 
of epigenetics with regards to you know critters like spiders, and I think that's well, what interests me. Well, actually, that hits on an interesting point uh, because until we can start taking something like a spider brain apart at the level where we can actually observe the connections between the nerve cells and and uh, and what kind of connections they are, we really are not in a position to compare two spider brains and say, well, are they both the same? They just, uh, you know, the wiring's just the same and they just uh, react to whatever circumstances they're in. Or is learning going on in that brain? But that also discounts the multiplicity of solutions. I'm always concerned with regards to the, we haven't yet mo- created the neural model description of what we try to do with artificial life or artificial intelligence. My feeling is that we have a wide variety of uh, optimizing and other algorithms at our disposal where we never actually need to model what goes on if we can create a black box that replicates what we see. Okay, look, I'm, I'm going to advertise something else. Uh, I heard a lecture this week by Jonathan Wolpaw, W-O-L-P-A-W. He's at uh, the Wadsworth Center, New York State Department of Health in, uh, in Albany, New York. And he's going to be on 60 Minutes on Sunday. So if you have access to that television program, you might want to see the interview. Now, what he's doing is taking people who have no motor control at all. In other words, they're totally paralyzed. Some of them even have lost eye mo- the ability to flicker their eyelids. He is interfacing to their brains with uh, elect- EEGs and then letting them train themselves so they can get full control of a computer keyboard directly from the cortex in the brain. You know, this opens up for these people, you know, whatever we can open up through computers, enriches their experience and their interaction with the world. I guess what I'm saying is the if you take that spider brain, we don't know how much it can do. And I've always had the impression that we, we, we are generally underrating the intelligence of animals. Again, you know, part of it is part of this attitude uh, about uh, not not accepting the Darwinian view of the world and of life, and that is that we have evolved from these other organisms. At what point, you know, was it magically when we became Homo sapiens that we became intelligent? When did this intelligence start? You know, where are we going to cut it off if we look at our our relatives around, which all the other organisms are. So I, I'd be very hesitant not to assume a priori that the spider is an automaton and that I'm intelligent. I, I wouldn't make that argument any stronger than I say, you know, Tom, you're an automaton and I'm conscious. As far as I'm concerned, if I want to pursue this idea of making a spider, um, a simulated spider that makes a web, I'm not so interested in in the debate about whether the spider is intelligent or not. I mean, I would say it is uh, because it's making decisions based on its environment and it's coming up with, with something that's going to serve, it's, it's going to help it eat. But I also don't know how much I need to know about spiders' brains in order to do an artificial life simulation that then helps me think a little bit more about uh, how, how spiders might think. So in other words, I wonder if... Um, if the artificial life simulation, even if it's not accurate, and even if it's based on a slightly, even if it's even if the model is not correct, is part of is part of the process of understanding uh, how spiders or any any uh, intelligent being thinks and uh, d- does 
does what it does. So in other words, um, I'm, I'm just interested in trying out this, try, trying out a simulation and, and, and see, seeing what I learn from it. In a way, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, Occam's razor as well. You know, you, if you're able, if uh, Jeffrey's able to make a simulation based on, you know, some uh, algorithmics and, and the, the result is uh, reasonably convincing, then, um, then you know, you, you've got the, uh, the simplest way to produce a certain behavior. Okay, well, let me question the, the concept reasonably convincing. To me, a, an artificial life simulation that's convincing is one which generates novelty and allows the process of evolution to continue to what you might call higher levels of organization. It strikes me that most artificial life simulations I'm aware of saturate sort of at some point. They don't lead to the continual, uh, the continual generation of novelty of new ways of doing things. And, wh- and why do you think that is? That's a good hooker because the, the, I don't know. I think it's because they're not co-evolving with a billion other artificial life simulations. Possibly. And that, 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 would, that would become the, its environment for continually evolving. But most artificial life simulations are a tiny sliver of, of what's, what's really going on. And so they, they plateau. Yeah, I mean, they, they, of course, you know, one of the interesting questions which we can't answer now, but if we come back 10 million years from now, we might have an inkling, and that is, will we evolve beyond what we are? I mean, or are we saturated some, in some sense? Mm. Well, at the moment, I would say physically our evolution is not really proceeding at a great rate because we really take care of our sick. Well, I disagree with you. No. Uh, If you look at the rate of increase of the height of men, uh, it's remarkable over a period of a few generations, and uh, and it's driven by the selection by women for taller men. Uh, If you look at... uh, Isn't that an assumption? Because, uh, you know, for, for example, if you look at Asia, Asian men are, are uh, you know, increasing, have increased in size really, really said subsequently, you know, so, uh, significantly in, in a very short time. And it's probably something more related to diet. Well, you may be right. I don't know the, I don't know the primary literature. Okay. Uh, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, straight... You, 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 attributed, you attributed a cause to it pretty quickly there. Well, well, I thought that we, well, that, that's what I, that's what I've heard from geneticists. But now you're saying, you know, and quite rightly, we should go back and check the primary literature and see how strong the argument is. I'm not arguing with you on that. You're, you may be right. But the uh, the idea that we're not subject to selective pressures is also an anecdotal conclusion, and I think it's probably wrong. But uh, well, let's uh, let's look at something very specifically. Um, for example, uh, diabetes. Uh, you know, it, I, um, I, a girlfriend of mine at high school, her father had diabetes, and, and he had a whole family of kids, and he wouldn't have survived otherwise. And, for example, myself, I had uh, uh, acute appendicitis when I was about 10, and I would have, I would have not survived long enough to, uh, to reproduce. So, you know, I had, there's, there's all when I, was, I had pneumonia when I was nine months and probably wouldn't have survived if antibiotics hadn't just been invented. Yep. But exactly. that, doesn't mean, that doesn't mean we're yeah. no longer evolving. We've got other kinds of pressures now. We've got other selections that are sure, but some it, of them are coming from ourselves. Sure, but it doesn't mean it, it does mean that the culling is is dramatically changed. Oh yes, oh yes, the factors on which it's occurring have changed. But I, uh, but that it is continuing I, uh, is it's sort of subtle because it's statistical in its nature, and you, you know, 
as individuals we don't see it. Well, there's a there's of course uh, if you you know there, there's an, an evolution of, of culture and an evolution of thought going on at a at a fairly high speed, and that's continuing uh, just you know at at a at a steadily oh, yeah. increasing rate because of the, the the levels and the forms of communication. That, for example, what we're doing right now. Yes, <laughs> I agree. I agree. So there there is evolution going on, but I just think you know physically the. The culling of the human race has changed dramatically. I mean, we've dominated the planet, and and we tend to, uh, you know, take care of people who would otherwise have not survived. Well, let's oh, yeah. see if the polar if the polar ice caps melt. You know, maybe that'll change. <laughs> yeah. If you've got, uh, you, you'll uh, you'll survive. For people, you'll survive only if you've got webbed feet. Yeah, or if you live and on if you have webbed feet. Oh, you're expecting? Well, no, no, you'll. You'll survive if you if you buy real estate inland. <laughs> well, or if you have a good immune system, because because the cities will become swamped with muddy water and bacteria and, and microbes will will evolve. Oh, or because you know, or in the Netherlands, you'll survive because you've invested heavily in a company that can build. And, <laughs> there, there will be uh, no more around the world. What? Netherlands won't exist anymore. <laughs> Oh sure it will. It'll just be a a, a large number of boats. I think <laughs> so. I think we've reached some kind of natural high ground with regards to the discussion, and also high ground. making the point with regards to real estate. Um, this is an important one uh, for me in particular because my wife and I have actually purchased a home in this evil United States of America, as previously described. So we will be uh, moving into it over the next few weeks. What I will do is try to make uh, the Biota live recordings with the usual frequency, but whether or not they make it into the stream with the similar kind of frequency is yet to be determined. But certainly over the next probably two or three shows, that will be something that affects us. Now, our topic next week relates to the concept of an artificial life winter, and certainly from the discussion this evening, you may be wondering if such a winter would even be possible with the kind of discourse that is going on in this call. Well, I think it really relates to ideas of uh, commercializing artificial life, artificial life startups, and a lot of the narrative that obviously uh, folks such as Justin Lyon and uh, some of the folks in Boston were talking about, um, you know, in the Biota podcast so far, and also with regards to the history that Gerald and I discussed uh, last episode and Bruce Damer and I discussed the episode before. So our next recording on Friday, November 14th at 8pm Pacific, Surviving an Artificial Life Winter, which ultimately is, I guess, a bit apocalyptic per the conclusion of this discussion. <laughs> Tom, Tom, if you've got a second, could you, for the people who don't know about it, give the exact title of the book and the publisher so they can... Look it up Certainly. Uh, there will be links in this podcast. In fact, I'm going to maintain on the podcast page. So if folks go to biota.org slash podcast, not only with regards to this show specifically, this is show number 36 for folks listening to it, our sequence, but also in the column along the side, I'm going to maintain a list of the books that folks who have participated are publishing in the near future or are being published in in the near future. And, uh, Dick, your book in particular will be top of the list. Okay, terrific. Knowing, knowing you guys has been wonderful because I think the artificial life perspective on these questions of uh, divinity, definition of life, evolution, etc., is going to become a very central part of the debate, and it and this is the first time it's ever entered that debate. And clearly we can't agree on anything, so that ultimately <laughs> the debate. The next 
discussion will be on November 14th, Friday, 8pm Pacific. Now, we may actually be getting copies of uh, the book as giveaways. My hope is that we'll get two copies, and when those two copies arrive, I will mention the, uh, the contest that I'd like to put out to get Biota live participation uh, from the broader community in order to get your hands on copies of this very book that we've been discussing this evening. So thank you all for participating this evening, and thanks to folks for listening in.